Hello, folks. It's Jeremy from Blamo. You know, the podcast you're listening to. Yep. As we wrap up the summer. Wait, are we wrapping up the summer? I mean, it's it's August. It's early August. This isn't this isn't the end of the summer at all, is it? Son of a dang it! Look, I'm just wanting this summer to be over. I'm done. I'm done with the heat. Whatever. I think I've said this the past few intros. Maybe it's because I record this after I'm burnt out from the heat. No pun intended. Bingo. Anyway, um, I have been continuing my obsession with music. I, I mean, I I feel like lately I've been way more into music, specifically like like what people would call classical music, right? Like very like music without words or just you know putting on headphones and zoning out and just like disconnecting and having incredible experiences just listening to music. But we all know the show's about clothes. Well, more the the people in the clothes. Yeah, I said it. And this week, it's the composer, Timo Andres. By the way, I said Timo, not Timo. Now you know. Timo. He's performed with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, the Britain Symphonia, and countless others, and also collaborated with Sufjan Stevens, Chris Thiele, the Kronos Quartet, and Philip Glass. By the way, this is, I, I'll say this because he didn't. Philip Glass said that he combines a brilliant compositional mind with a wonderful sense of interpretation of music. Uh, that's about as good of a compliment as you're going to get from Philip Glass. Holy moly. He's a virtuoso on the piano and a virtuoso on the fits. It's Timo Andres, and he's on Blamo. Timo and I chat his career in music, whether or not you need high-end headphones to appreciate classical music, his Herman Miller collection, getting fits off while slamming the ivories, and why Philip Glass thinks he's the real MVP. It's a pod for the ages. Here we go. Timo, thanks for making the time to chat. Um, Absolutely. We're in your your wonderful oasis of incredible <laughs> design with a grand piano in there. That's right. Yeah, that was my my teacher's piano, actually. How did you get that in this house? It came in here very easily, actually, just through okay. the front door. You you know, you take the legs off, you turn right. it on its side. Um, you hire professionals, of course. <laughs> um, there was one apartment I, I I lived on the third floor of a brownstone, old brownstone, um, with a twisty, narrow staircase, and they carried it up that, and it almost didn't make it in. It was so close. There are still marks on the piano and on that house, probably. Um, and I, <laughs> I remember when it when it was finally sitting on the floor of my new apartment, I I was so relieved. I broke down and wept. <laughs> it was so, so traumatic. Are you an emotional guy? I mean, I think that's, I feel like that's a, an assumption of many people who are musicians. Um, no, actually, I'm not, um, I'm, I'm usually not very demonstrative with my emotions just because I'm, I guess, you know, I guess I'm a, a pretty private person in mm -hmm. some ways. Um, it sounds funny because of course music is so emotional and it's so, so it, so much about wanting to make people feel something, both in my playing and, and in the music I write. Uh, I, I want to make people feel things, but I don't want to tell them, like, this is what you should feel. Oh. Yeah, that, okay, because you'd mentioned about kind of being conscious of, of how someone perceives more or less the music or the art that you're playing. Like, does that, like, and I say this because I listen to a ton of classical stuff lately. and. Mm. To where music for me has such a strong nostalgia and memory attached to it that even though the point of, say, an opera or of something like this might have been completely different, where my state of mind was when I experienced it actually is overcomes what the song might have even been written for. 
And I'm always curious, like, as a composer, right. does that ever throw you off? You know, I think it's it's sort of beyond my control. Sure. Um, I, I, you know, it's different for different kinds of music. I mean, you mentioned opera. I mean, of course, opera is sort of all about revealing a character's inner emotional state um, in sort of the most extreme way possible. I mean, there's there's no more extreme art form than opera <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, with something like what I do, which is you know, play other composers' music on the piano and my own music. Yeah, say, and, yeah. and I write my own music, of yeah. course. Um, there's something about, like, what I'm trying to do is actually express the composer's intent as closely as possible um, and as as vividly as possible and as clearly as possible. And in doing that, hope that that, that emotional reaction is, is triggered in whoever's listening to it. But I'm not actually thinking, oh, this music is about this specific emotion mm. or I want the audience to feel such and such a way at this moment of the piece. It's much more actually, for me, uh, uh, sort of abstract than that and 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 much more sort of analytical you know i'm making it sound sort of more uh more boring than it actually is um but i think the the process of interpretation and the the process of kind of creating a document for other musicians to interpret is really fascinating to me and that's sort of how quote unquote classical uh, for lack of a better word how the classical world has worked uh, you mean for like hundreds of years? You're referring to sheet music, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. This sort of document that's that is reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. Um, whereas, if you were say writing songs as a band or writing songs for you to perform um, in a more and and you're not writing songs for someone else, in other words, mm-hmm. um, I think there is more of a process of sort of yeah, getting in touch with your innermost thoughts and feelings and finding ways to express those kind of in the most visceral uh, way possible. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's sort of another side of the craft. Yeah. Well, let's jump back further because you're, you're an East Coast guy and... Well, I was born in California, but what? I did... Yeah, that's right, but Palo Alto. I did, I did grow up, um, yeah, most, mostly in, the, in Connecticut, in the country. Right. So like where, where did music sort of enter your life? Because I think a lot of people describe you as a virtuoso. You've gotten shout outs from folks like Philip Glass. Like, <laughs> I mean, this is uh you're 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 a massive deal in the world of um like piano playing and, well, and composing and writing. So like <laughs> that's very kind of you to say. I gotta connect um, these dots here. <laughs> I I think music had always fascinated me and and there was sort of an allure to it that I didn't quite understand from when I was very young. I can remember, you know, listening to records, listening to tapes, um, figuring out how to operate, you know, the, the hi-fi. What was uh, the first record you heard? Hard to say. I mean, uh, it was sort of a mix of like, I'd, I'd say like some classical favorites that my parents had around the house and, and like children's music that they'd got me, uh, basically. Um, you know, I can, I can remember really liking um, Pete Seeger records oh, that, okay. that my dad had. And, um, there we go. Malvina Reynolds, who was another um, folk singer, I think I think a Bay Area folk singer from around the 60s, 70s. Um, and also really liking Beethoven. There were a couple Beethoven records in there. A little different than some of the folk stuff. Well, but you know, <laughs> at that point, it was all just music to me. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and 
I think actually part of my life's work is trying to con- to reconvince people that it is all just music, you know. Oh, which is something I feel very strongly. It's like it is. It's all just music. Like yeah, there's good music and there's bad music, and not everything is for everyone. But it's all Are, just music. Do you mean like in in the concept of and you know correct me if I'm wrong because I might fumble a bit here how people view you know I'm air quoting classical as something that is completely outside of yeah or or punk right. or hip hop or like whatever the genre whatever these boxes are they were not things that were invented by musicians and they're not generally how musicians think about music go on we are are the, the way that i think about music and the way that almost every musician i know thinks about music is having these very porous sort of boundaries between what different styles of music uh how it how it may sound on the surface the kind of spaces that it might exist in, the kind of people who might make it. You know, we're sort of in the business of trying to see what is in common, to tie things together, to connect things, because that's sort of anyone who makes music is always sort of looking to steal. You know, we're always look like we're always approaching things, whether we know it or not, we're always approaching things from the perspective of, you know, could this be useful to me in a way? Oh. Um, and so when you start listening to music in that way, I think it's much more interesting because you start sort of connecting the dots. You start seeing who was influenced by what and what the, the, the sort of a beautiful mind diagram with all the <laughs> strings connecting everything. And that maybe the music history that we're taught by, you know, looking for things on Spotify or, the or you know, in, in our day, like going <laughs> yeah. to record stores or um, or the music history that if like if we go to music school, this sort of linear progression of music history that we learn that maybe that is something that's imposed from outside of music. And actually, musicians themselves don't really operate that way, that we're always sort of approaching this great big pile of all the music that's ever been made and sort of rooting around in it and saying, like, what can I take? You know? What 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 are what's my own personal canon going? I mean, to this be? is an incredibly introspective discussion on something that many people view as something that they turn on so they can focus. I mean, the, uh, uh, no, and, and I <laughs> I love it, but yeah, I mean, right, it, it right. looks like this was obviously refined a ton at home. W- what was the sort of well, environment you were in that was you know, cultivating I, that? Yeah, it was. Um, neither of my parents are are musicians, but um, I. I would say I come from a family of of very deep music appreciators. Um, in particular, my my grandfather, my dad's dad, mm-hmm. um, had a huge record collection and was a an opera buff and was sort of was sort of into the the contemporary classical music of his time, right. which would have been you know. Bartok and Shostakovich and Stravinsky and Prokofiev and Ravel and well, no, Ravel was a little before his time, but um, and and so he uh, being being around him, like he would always be sort of you know giving me uh, something new to listen to, um, you know, buying me a CD or recording something to tape that he thought I would like, um, and he took a a great interest in in what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't start really. Play really doing music myself until I was about seven, which you know sounds very young, but in the milieu of sort of classical music, you know, you have these three and four year old kids yeah. like starting violin lessons, like <laughs> um, going to Juilliard and stuff like that. W- wasn't quite me, but um, my so my my dad uh, wrote about technology um, as his as his profession and 
during the 90s was always there was, so there was a steady stream of like gadgets and computer equipment and um you know early digital cameras that sort of thing coming into our house for him to review to write about oh he was like a tech reviewer uh no yeah i guess he was kind of um oh that's sick yeah he 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 sort of fell in with the early Apple crowd. So he's like um, the Walt Mossberg homie sort of well, guy. Well, not, except like not successful. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but no, no, he, he wrote books about um, software. And, okay. Um, you know, he, he, he wrote some, some books about like Adobe programs, like long before it was Creative Suite. He wrote like a book about Adobe Illustrator, like the very first version. And um, so there was always sort of this stuff coming through the house. But it sounds like a very analytical understanding of, yeah, yeah of, of art, of potential art forms, right? I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was someone who was, as I said, like not really, not not an artist himself, but had certainly deep interests mm. in art and design and typography and architecture and music and theater and, you know, all of these things, um, which, of course, my mom shared. Um, and she sort of came from a family of, you know, actors and writers and, and critics and sort of literary people. And so there was, it, it wasn't that, you know, I went into the family business or anything, but there was always sort of this idea in the house that like, oh yeah, being an artist is it's like something you can do. Yeah. Um, I mean, that that's a huge thing. It is, yeah. Because I, I feel like, especially at that time too, it culturally, it felt like artists were getting, um, especially around like the, the dot-com era of the 90s and things like that, where you know, renegades and the, and the non-traditional education, they, they were becoming you know, these trailblazers of, of science and engineering and understanding. And people would always equate them as artists. Like, I, I always get frustrated when people compare someone like Steve Jobs to Da Vinci. But like, that was a very <laughs> common thing, uh, you know, of that of that time. <laughs> I was sort of, um, yes, I was I was very lucky to grow up in this this very encouraging uh, environment, mm -hmm. you know, where it was sort of understood, like, Oh, Timo seems really serious about this music stuff. Like, let's find him a better teacher. Let's like find him a piano. Like, um, was piano your first instrument? Yes, my first and only instrument. There you go. Okay. Uh, so one of the one of the gadgets that my dad was sent to review was this little electronic keyboard called the Miracle Piano Teaching System. Um, and the the keyboard you hooked it up to your Mac, and then there was a software program that would teach you to play basically it was a midi keyboard um so the computer could understand if you were playing the right notes or not um and in roughly the right rhythms and it would tell you if you made a mistake it taught me how to read music um there was a little game where ducks would swim by on a five line staff and if you played the note that the duck was on it would shoot the duck it would sort of explode in a little this sounds cloud like of feathers still ahead of its time <laughs> uh, it kind of was i mean it didn't exactly catch on. I think there was only one version of it. Um, but, you know, of course, there are, there are, you know, you buy an iPad now. It's like there are things that are like amazingly more advanced. Like you have, a, you know, full sequencer and like recording studio in, in right. your iPad now. Um, but, you know, at that time, yeah, I guess it was, this would, would have been, you know, 1992, 1993. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just, I became obsessed with it. I was playing, you know, all my, all my spare time. I started writing things down 
you know, I didn't even really understand music notation yet, but I was writing it nonetheless. Really? Um, and I'd sort of draw my own manuscript paper. And, um, you, you know, it was it was clearly like I just um, took to it. And then my, you know, I, so I finished this program. Uh, my parents got me a local piano teacher and then another local piano teacher. And um, eventually it was clear like you know this teacher was tim o should really find something 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 else like um and then i ended up um seeing a uh 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 actually one of my mom's childhood friends um who she went to school with when she when she from the time she was very young her mother taught piano in new york okay. um, so my parents were like oh let you know let's take tim o to see eleanor just to see what she says like get a professional opinion um and eleanor um became my piano teacher for the next uh you know through high school basically oh wow um so from the time i was about 11 uh i started going into new york every two or three weeks for lessons and then later every other week and then every week um and you were in connecticut at this time yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so at first my dad would drive me on the weekends later on, I would take the, uh, the Peter Pan bus into Port Authority. Um, and I'd, I'd go up to Juilliard where I was studying composition and then I'd go up to, um, to 88th street and take my piano lesson. And, um, and that's in the other room. That's the, the piano that I would take my lessons on. That's, uh, that belonged to Eleanor. And yeah, it, it was really just always a thing that was, it was the, the thing that I loved to do the most and the, the thing that I was so obviously better at than anything else in my life. You know, I was not good in school. I was not, you know, um, I didn't apply myself, I think, uh, was, was the language that would have been used. Because <laughs> uh, I, I always had this thing that like was outside of school that I knew was my thing. Um, and then the, the writing music sort of started out as kind of a side thing, something I did sort of on my own time for fun and um, gradually started to gain an importance until it was, you know, as important as playing the piano. And um, I'd say for a time more important. And that, that's actually what I ended up going to school in was composing, not piano playing. Um, What's the difference in that? Yeah, I mean, it's a totally different course of study, really. Um, it it struck me as sort of a, a lower stress and possibly more interesting way to study, um, just because it seemed much more open-ended. I had had a piano teacher who I really loved and connected with, and I knew that playing the piano w was always something that would be a big part of my life. But I also knew that if I went to a school to study piano, I'd be with some other teacher and they would want to sort of start me in their own way. And I would, you know, at that time, all I wanted to do was sort of play like cra the craziest contemporary music that, you know, no teacher would like ever agree to like to teach me. And, you know, I, I sort of like for what, like what example? I, I already had my own interests. Like, um, like in high school, I decided I wanted to study um, the this piece called the Concord Sonata by Charles Ives, early American composer, um, which is sort of this wild experimental piece from the early 20th century, um, 
lasts about an hour. You know, it's oh it's like cr this crazy like homage to transcendentalism and Beethoven and and like all of these sort of um, revolutionary ideas that uh, that he had. Um, and you know, that's not it's not a standard piece of piano literature, shall we say? <laughs> it's a, it's quite off the beaten path. It's and it's quite um, you know the list of piano teachers who would even know it is relatively probably more now less 20 years ago yeah is homie on um, spotify or something here definitely yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so you know i had all i had already sort of worked up this big piece you know i knew that that's the kind of music that i wanted to focus on was like this sort of off the beaten path stuff was there you know? other music you were listening to that was influencing your desire to I mean at that time actually no that's okay. an interesting point I mean um, up through high school beginning of college I was really just like I was so focused on on the classical world and on you know sort of learning more of the classical literature and you know I just I had this feeling of like I I didn't know anything I, I didn't know anything mm. but I and I wanted to learn I was so hungry for music that I, I was sort of just on the straight and narrow path and I also I had a very sort of non-traditional schooling experience where I, I was just kind of around um you know I, I certainly heard like the pop music of the time that my friends were listening to but it wasn't something that i felt like interested me yet mm -hmm. um it was still very much like i've got my own thing i'm like so focused on it i'm like obsessed with all of this you know this music that i'm studying did you look down on pop music um you know, I probably did a little bit in that way that teenagers can You're like, no, you know, man, think, I'm in the high art. Yeah, they think they have everything figured out and they sure, you know, uh, I was like, no, I want to listen to like Ravel and Beethoven. And, um, and, you know, soon after that, I would say I, I sort of had uh, I, I, real, I realized the error of my ways. I, I, I went to college, you know, suddenly I was around all these um, these people my age who were like listening to really interesting stuff that was totally off my radar you know all kinds of jazz all kinds of pop music that was you know really experimental and yeah. um sort of uh you know people were like you you know timo you really have to like you really have to know this you have to like they'd give me stacks of cds it was and it was also at that time i'd i should say the the height of the like itunes ipod era oh, of music yeah and let me make you a playlist <laughs> yeah, and not only that, but if you were on a large network like that, there was this thing called iTunes library sharing where you could check a box in iTunes and it would broadcast your whole music library over the network. I remember that. Which, you know, in this case was the whole campus. Right. Um, what a treasure trove. <laughs> it was incredible. And and you could just go into someone else's library and click a song and it would play. It would stream across the network. And, um, you know, that was, it was like the earliest form of streaming music, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, and you, did, you didn't, there were actually like pirate apps you could use to copy the song yeah. to your local, you, you know, you could put it on your iPod and take it around with you. Um, and so that it was actually a, a way that I listened to a lot of stuff. I would like, you know, sort of look in my friends' music libraries or even people I didn't know and just see like, oh, what does this person have? And it was a, a it was a way that you met people too. I, I remember this, this this one girl, you know, I thought I had a pretty big music library, right? I had okay. maybe, you know, 60, 80 gigs of music on my on Flex. my laptop. Yeah, 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 which at that time was a lot of music. <laughs> yeah. um, this girl had like 200 gigs of music. I 
was like, Whoa. "Who is this girl? I have to, I have to meet her." <laughs> um, and it was all, it was all, like all over the map. You know, she had classical music, she had all kinds of pop music, she had like, you know, just just a lot of experimental stuff. Um, and you know, we we like we met, we met up, we became friends. You know, um, it was actually like a little. It, it was a little net local social network based around music. Um, and so that around that time, I kind of had this thought like, cause my musical uh, sort of taste and my musical world were sort of in the process of being blown wide open. Mm. Um, was there a particular artist that you could tie that to or, or even an era? Well, of- it was sort of, it sort of had to do simultaneously with a couple of things with, um, First of all, with me starting to listen to minimalism, to minimalist composers, which up to that point I hadn't. Who's a minimalist composer? Well, again, I'm putting people in boxes because it's a convenient thing to do. And these are all very different composers, but people like John Adams and Steve Reich and Philip Glass. Philip Glass is minimal. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, So so called. I mean, he would not uh, use that term. Sure. Uh, You know, uh, Arvo Pert. Michael Nyman, you know, there are all, all kinds of people that I, I sort of went down this rabbit hole and I sort of um, simultaneously started listening to like Brian Eno and oh, there we go. Um, you know, these sort of electronic groups like Boards of Canada. Oh, that's, um, that's a big pivot. You know, more sort of like f- experimental jazz, like Keith Jarrett. And uh, do you ever get into like Matmos? Because I remember at that era that yeah, they were sure. like Bjork's band, yeah, Bjork's yeah, backing yeah. band SF, yeah, yeah, or, or for that matter, Bjork herself. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I started to listen to that. Um, you know, all all kinds of things that I was kind of starting to do that thing where I was saying like, I see how these things are similar. I see how these things are connected. Um, and it was sort of this way of opening my ears up little by little to sounds that might have previously just seemed like they had nothing to do with anything to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really, I, I had it. I remember very distinctly at that moment saying like, I am always going to keep an open mind to music that seems new to me. I never want to be that person who just dismisses something because I don't understand it. I never want to be that person again. Um, and it, I think it's made me a happier and better musician mm. in my life to just sort of remind myself to do that. Because of course you you know later it can get so tied up in issues of like knowing people personally or uh, professional envy or like you know having a preconceived idea of a person that is actually not really who they are and like or if you hear something about someone from a friend and you're like oh well now I have this like preformed idea of their their art in my head it's like well actually that doesn't really have anything to do with anything like you should probably just like evaluate the art on its own terms and like forget what that person told you um but even beyond that it 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 was more just about being making myself more porous to influences and and this obviously must have affected your composition because absolutely a couple other friends of mine are musicians and they're you know, relatively successful. I don't know how you want to describe it, but they had said that your music is the bridge of classical air quote music to like, you know, modern music in the sense that you can listen Hmm. to your compositions and it'll make you either dive deeper into maybe some of the roots or some of the Schubert or some of the other stuff Hmm. or, you know, hear things from other eras and kind of go through that. So you're like, your music is very a bridge to a lot of these other worlds. I think that's absolutely 
true. Uh, that's actually wonderful to hear. I mean, that's I, I like that. I mean, because I think through all of this, through through you know that sort of transition phase early in college, and you know through my sort of musical development since, I've always you know the the stuff that I grew up with has always remained at the core. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know I think there's there's something to that, like the music that you heard and listened to and loved from the time you were say 11 12 13 through 21 you know that's sort of the music that will always be at your core you know for better or worse uh that's sort of when your brain is the most malleable. yeah no i know exactly what you mean it yeah. imprints on you and you know it by heart uh-huh. you know i there's stuff that i haven't touched in you know over a decade that i could probably go play you by memory yeah you know it wouldn't be good but (laughs) i I would be able to play it um and oh yeah yeah this idea of like sort of being a bridge you know i love classical music you know i love it deeply and and there is so much sort of um there's so much i think about the the grammar and sort of the rhetoric and the way my music is structured mm-hmm. that is directly from that. And I I could try to distance myself from it, but I, I don't think I could ever get away with, you know, the type of music that I write, the way my music sounds, it's like, it's a result of that, you know, rooting around in the pile and pulling out the things that appeal to me. And that that's, you know, I think every musician working in any style who has any kind of personal voice or identifiable voice, it's the same way. It's the, it's the music they grew up with, the music they've come to love, just the stuff that they've absorbed to the point where they don't even know, they're not even th- thinking about it. It's just, it's so, it's like so deep in a part mm. of your brain. To you, it's just become how music works. Right. Um, so that's, it's, it's very interesting. I mean... I think there is this idea, um, and has been for a long time for a number of reasons, that you know classical music is this very um, kind of separate and intimidating and somewhat exclusionary thing, or that it's some, somehow intellectual, is or that it's, I think there's a, there's definitely a, a, a cloak of elitism around a lot of classical. Yeah, music. well, which was which it surrounded itself with willingly for a long time, <laughs> right, uh, you know, sure, which I think yeah. to it. To, to its great detriment. Um, and I think there was a, for a long time, this idea in the culture that like classical music was sort of up here at the top of the pyramid yeah. on this kind of pedestal and that it, you know, it was, it was some, somehow better, right. You know, in, in some way or that it was like better for you or, you know, um, which I think uh, I'm relieved to say, I think that, that most people no longer think that. I mean, probably in some corners of the classical music world, sure. people still think that. But, but like, I don't think most people my age think yeah, that. No, no, I, I agree. But I mean, I think there's something, and I apologize for asking you to explain this, but like, why is it that Bach, like, and, you know, someone like that or Beethoven, their their music just never goes away. Like, it, it's... They're, they've in a way it's it's become like the standards in which a lot of people view classical music where it's like why is why is there such a staying power of something like that well i do think it's self-perpetuating in a way okay um that there there is this kind of um passing down of musical knowledge um that's sort of a nice way of looking at it mm-hmm. and i think it's good it's and, and it's actually you know it's something that is 
amazing about classical music is that it does have this centuries and centuries of history and and of sort of inherited wisdom and there's all there's always so much more to learn you know i think part of it is you know the sort of dark side of that would be like oh people like tradition for tradition's sake and they don't really question it and they just want to hear the things that they know and you know the that's how the canon becomes the sort of immutable um mm. thing that's put up on a pedestal that like you can never touch which is, of course is something that's very discouraging if you're like a composer born in 1985 <laughs> who like wants to write who wants to contribute to this tradition sure. you know um, these guys are 200 plus years old what the hell is wrong yeah it's like you know you can't compete yeah um and you know i do think that it's it's for one thing a lot of the music that has persisted has been the best documented. You know, a lot of musicians over time have kind of studied it and performed it and okay. taught it. And so it gets passed down that way. Um, and, you know, it's like it's it's like the proverbial tip of the iceberg. It's like for all the stuff we know that has survived all that time, there's like so much stuff that has been just lost to history and, you know, for one reason or another, you know, maybe the composer wasn't quite as famous. Maybe their publisher didn't right. like, maintain their archives as well. Like, you know, maybe they didn't have kids to perpetuate their legacy or, you know, any number of reasons. Yeah. Um, I wonder if some of that stuff has been helpful to some folks in the sense where it's like, okay, say, imagine, you know, Bach is around in an era of Instagram and social media and now no one plays his music because he was an asshole to some person person at a coffee shop and you know box canceled like you the, those people are more or less you know I invincible because there's also not that much personal sort of history that you can dig up about some of these folks well in know. the case of bach that's kind of true yeah we yeah. just don't know that much about the guy um in yeah i mean i mean i'm just kind of the, being silly here with some no, of that no but it's it's, it, it's an interesting <laughs> it's an interesting point i mean this this idea you know i'd i'd say you know on the on the side of like more destructive forces this idea of like composer hagiography of like putting these composers up on pedestals mm. and saying like oh this person was divine a divine genius yeah. and they could never you know no these were these were just people they were fallible human beings who like happen to be very good at a thing and somehow you know approached a level where they were so they managed to become so uh so obsessed with their craft and so you know so sort of single-mindedly devoted to something mm. that they produced work of a extraordinary quality right and that something about that work uh has registered with people for hundreds of years right you know and I think that is largely true of um, most of the composers whose work we know and play now. I mean, I think it's not everything's for everyone. There are certainly quote unquote great composers who are just not for me. I think that's fine. Um, we all sort of have to have our own personal um, personal tastes, like within what is within under under the umbrella of classical music. Um, but I think the important thing is, yeah, to remain curious, to remain open-minded, to say like, oh, me, you know, maybe I, maybe I don't think I like, you know, Liszt or Bruckner or like Tchaikovsky, or just just to name three composers who like I would say aren't really for me. Mm -hmm. um, but I always, you know, I'll, 
I, I'm always curious to like hear a piece I don't know by any of them and to give it another shot to say, oh, maybe there was something I was missing here. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's, it's, I would hope that, that people um, approach my music with the same degree of open-mindedness. Well, okay. So here's a, here's a question. And then I want to jump to close stuff, but like <laughs> um, if someone's going to listen to your music, are you, are you like, you go full Neil Young and you're pissed because they're listening to it on AirPods? <laughs> no, I mean, the amount of music that I listen to literally out of my iPhone speakers is like, it's, it's actually very, uh, it's probably bad. So I take it I do you, you don't, you don't seem to I mind know. that much. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not really an audiophile. Um, I mean, I, of course I care about like the quality of the documentation of my work. Right. Um, sure. and I, I am very picky about that. Um, uh, but yeah, however anyone wants to listen to my music, like I'm, happy like yeah it, so you're not like, like oh if you're not at bitrate this oh my god no are you kidding me <laughs> no i mean if god i mean i put my music up on youtube i mean well, youtube squashes everything down like it when i okay when, when i listen to one of my recordings like in pristine like 96 24 like on my nice that's basically for those who don't my, know the highest quality audio it's yeah, yeah it's the it's the quality bit. i record in yeah um, it's just more information. I, I play it back on my nice AD converter on my, my nice oh, headphones. It it's like, he's got the gear. Yeah, it sounds great. <laughs> it sounds better than it does on YouTube. Sure. And I wish that everyone could listen. Everyone who listened to it heard it that way. But like, you know, what am, what am I going to do? Well, but here's the thing too, because first off, as an aside, I think people always forget that YouTube uh, is still the world's largest uh, music player, which is mind-boggling It's not to surprising, me. yeah. And, but the fact that... So there's a lot of music that I'll listen to, and there's, you know, I have like the casual music, right? Where it's like, you're putting on an album, and it's on shuffle, and it's on a playlist, and the playlist is not even, you know, relative to a specific artist. It's a theme. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's a very casual, it's a crackerjack box of music. And then there's some things, and this is some of the stuff I've done lately, into which I will sit down and I will listen to an album from start to finish with headphones. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, and I'm trying to incorporate that more with also a lot more of like classical stuff. Um, well, but, it's funny because of, of course, most classical music is not in albums, really. Well, I mean, some yeah, of it, some say, of it is. Yeah. <laughs> some of it is, you, you know, I, I think, you know, more recent stuff maybe was sure. to be my first album, for example, uh, Shy and Mighty, that was written to be an album, you know, 60 minutes, 10 tracks, yeah. you know, play it front to back. And then there are other things like maybe a, maybe a pianist will say like, oh, I selected this particular sequence of pieces that were not written to be together, but they have something. I'm, I'm like trying mm -hmm. to show you something by the order I put them in, mm -hmm. kind of like programming a, a concert or something like that, I'd say would be an album. Otherwise, it's just like, oh, you know, it's Beethoven 3 and Beethoven 4 on a, on a CD. It's like, well, that's not an album. It's two pieces. <laughs> <laughs> that don't really have anything to do with each other. Um, so, yeah. I'd, and I mean, I'd say more, the album is so much more a thing when you get into like pop music where things right. really were written to be albums and, and you can have these sort of wonderful large form, large form compositions, really. It's like the equivalent of a symphony, maybe. Oh, where yeah, it's like, I guess it's true. Okay, for 30, 40 minute album is structured to give you this journey over a large period of time, a long period of time. Just, yeah. it, just in the same way that like 
a Mahler symphony. It was, you know, structured to give you this emotional experience over 80, 90 minutes, you know. Well, I definitely want to pivot to the environment that we're in and the environment that you compose in because yeah. I think, you know, I've watched a, a fair share of pianists play and things like that. And generally they're on the sort of posturpedic, you know, stools and benches. And you're the only person I've seen uh, rocking on an Eames, Eames plywood chair. Well, that's funny. I, um, so so this, this chair in, in this room, that's the chair that came with the piano. Okay. Um, it's, it's like a little, it's, yeah, it's not like a, a bench. It's like a little chair with a back. A yeah, like a chair. three feet tall or maybe. Um, yeah. I started playing on the Eames chair when I started recording, actually. When I started recording those videos, because that chair is extremely squeaky. Oh, <laughs> So it was a sonic choice. It was not an aesthetic choice. Yeah, I was sort of hearing the squeaks in the videos. And um, I was like, oh, do I have anything quieter that's like roughly the right height? Um, And so the the Eames plywood chair was um, just sort of the thing I had at hand. It's nice and quiet. Okay. Um, And I've gotten used to sitting at that height. Now, it's honestly not a ideal piano. Bench. You wouldn't bring it to Carnegie Hall? I, only I feel if like I could, that's your signature now. Only if I could take the piano with me. Okay. Go take my own piano. <laughs> um, no, I really should get a proper artist bench because they're like, they're built that way for a reason. Like they're extremely heavy and stable. And oh, okay. it's actually nice to be able to like move horizontally. Some, like sometimes you want to sit actually like more toward the top of the piano so you don't have to put your hands at a weird position to play something really high. Or right. Like, so they're, okay. they're, they're long, they're benches for a reason. Right. Um, really, the only thing stopping me is they're surprisingly expensive. The chairs or the benches? The, 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 real artist benches they're yeah. surprisingly expensive and like um i guess i just don't love how they look uh, let's <laughs> well, clearly, be i mean because we're we're surrounded in a incredible sort of almost mid-century wonderland of of goods here and i'm kind of <laughs> curious how some of these things fit in well that was you know I'd, i've always really been into um really since i was a kid uh like my environment like lear- learning more about sort of the way things were designed and built and you know everything from objects up to buildings and cities and um always sort of into the the uh aspect of the visual arts that was sort of useful things like things that were made for use but mm. that were also aesthetically really interesting um so you know graphic design industrial design you know posters and and uh books and uh, typography, that sort of thing. Um, and later clothes. Yeah. Um, and the furniture thing was really something that I was interested in from a, a very young age. I, I have these, you know, old, old issues of, um, if you remember ID magazine, not the fashion ID magazine, but oh, the yeah. international design magazine of, of industrial design that I subscribed to when I was a kid. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, you know, I was very popular with my peers. What could I say? Um, and so I'd I'd always sort of had this eye out for furniture and started sort of collecting things when I was in college, even like if for my dorm room, um, with the idea that you know eventually I'd have a real apartment and like I would need you know chairs and a coffee table and lamps and right, you know various right. things. 
Um, <laughs> a lot of that stuff I still have, actually. I mean, this mid-century bench. That this is the Nelson used... bench, right? No, no, it's like from around that time, but it's okay. it's not you know it's not as fancy. Um, but it's something I picked up on the on the street in New Haven. <laughs> you know, when I was living there. I mean, same it's... with this chair. This Eames, uh, it's a shell chair with yeah. a um like a roller base uh you know there's a lot of um institutional furniture at universities that yeah, they were like the know, biggest customer of herman go, miller yeah if they go to renovate a building from the 60s or 70s they're just gonna throw all that stuff out also a lot of it was going out on the street um and i, I i'd pick it up um certain other things uh were sort of um, passed down to me. It was a, an old family friend um, we had who was sort of a mentor to me uh, who lived in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, I think I, I must have been like moving into my first apartment or something in, in graduate school. And he said, oh, I've got a lot of old furniture down in the basement. You know, go see if there's anything you can use. Um, I go down there. There's all this, you know, Nelson, um, Noguchi, you know, these, these beautiful, um, pieces from the, from the sixties, uh, that were sort of, you know, sitting under a, a layer of dust and mildew. Uh, and I was like, Kenny, can I, can I take these? You, are you sure you don't mind? And he's like, yeah, take them. Wow. I, you know, tied them to the roof of my parents' minivan. And, um, yeah, so, it's, uh, bunch of nice stuff uh came from that uh from that basement um and then you know i've just sort of uh as i needed things over the years um you know always sort of sprung for you know the, have you bought new herman miller stuff uh, a few or? things i mean that that uh my my desk chair for example i mean that's a thing that they okay is yeah from only like maybe five years ago it's like an like Aeron the, the sort design. of design yeah yeah, it's called a Cosm chair. Uh, yeah, we we bought <laughs> we bought matching ones during the pandemic actually because we're both um, spending so much time just like at our desks at home, and we we both like would just like our our spines would feel terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we we did that, and and then you know we did we didn't really buy too much furniture when we moved into this place maybe a, a couple of things um uh, i mean the fact that you had that much to just furnish i mean to cuz your place it looks very kitted out in the sense that like it doesn't look like oh well there's that you know they just bought a place and you know they haven't finished that room up yet <laughs> um well it's sort of a work in progress uh but yeah it it is um you know everything has has sort of been settling in um but, you know, it's it's more just, uh, you know, of course, I had like a bunch of Ikea stuff um, mm-hmm. when I when I was younger, like everyone else. And, you know, as it broke and fell apart, uh, like with each successive move. Right. You know, these things don't last very long. And I'd sort of say like, well, you know, maybe I can spring for something that's a little better to replace it. Something that'll actually last me you know, for 10 years rather than two years. And, you know, it was very much sort of that same mentality at the time of, you know, 2008 through 2012 of like, buy less, but better. Yeah. Which uh, I think everyone took as buy more, you know, at least I did. Yeah. There's a lot, (laughs) a lot of things I look back on that I'm like, well, I wasn't really doing that. (laughs) You know, um, 
But it was a, a, a mentality that was always very attractive to me. Right. As someone who obviously likes nice things, sure. but also is kind of like, you know, I'm thrifty in my way. It's right. like, oh, if I'm just going to have to like replace that dresser in two years anyway, then like, is it really such a good deal? Um, so I, yeah, I subscribe to that notion very much in terms of housewares and all of course all my friends uh, make fun of me because they're like oh timo's gonna buy the most expensive thing possible <laughs> but it's not true it's not true well i mean and you got into clothes around this time too or at least late a thoughts. little later it's interesting because um it was growing up you know both of my parents come from the generation where they were sort of rejecting the the codes of dress of their parents you know mm-hmm. growing up growing up in the 60s and 70s and you know i don't think my dad has i don't think i've ever seen him wear a suit i don't think he owns a suit oh interesting you know he okay. might own a couple like funny sport weddings and funerals sort of like thing like a seer maybe seersucker sport coat okay uh, you know, he's he's sort of embraced his his um like old man eccentricity uh in his his dressing, um but you know I did not grow up you you know knowing like how a suit should fit uh, right you know I didn't have a pair of like real dress shoes like until I was re- really like late in my twenties um and so I ne I, but it was a really like a mentality where it was like oh if, if you care about that stuff that's shallow you know you're if if you care too much about how you look if you care too like about looking cool for your friends like that's dumb and you shouldn't care about that um and so that i sort of had that idea when i was growing up like oh i shouldn't care about clothes like clothes are dumb and a waste of time um well i feel like that was also I mean, because we're the same age, and I think till I don't know what was going on culturally at the time, or whatever sort of culture wars were existing. But when I liked clothes, people started making fun of my sexuality. You know, like you know, I think that was probably an aspect of it where it wasn't quite yet considered. uh, I guess safe for a man to like care too much about how he dressed. Yeah, it was very taboo. And meanwhile, these are goofballs who are, you know, buying Abercrombie and Fitch. Right, you know, of course. Whatever. Like, and so everyone, I'm like, you do care yeah, what you're dressed cares like. so much. Um, <laughs> but like, well, you're but wearing I think, a jacket. <laughs> you know, especially as someone who very much didn't fit in growing up, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, you know, with the various interests. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I, there was something about like just sort of not not really putting too much effort into how I dressed that was sort of maybe more approachable. I, I was sure. maybe more approachable that way. Um, in retrospect, I was always very picky about what I wore. I couldn't have really told you why, but it was like, I was very much like, oh, I like this pair of pants, but I don't like this pair. I, ref- I refused to wear jeans for a long time because, oh. I mean, you remember the jeans of that era of like, yeah. you know, sort of I late, wore girls jeans. late 90s, early 2000s. It was like, I mean, everyone did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These really low rise things yeah. with, the, you know, uh, just weird, uh, unflattering stuff um, for a, like a tall gawky teenager. (laughs) Um, And that was the other thing is like, I never really found the clothes that made me not feel like a tall, gawky, awkward teenager. Um, And so I think that's why I didn't really find 
sort of a personal style for myself until later. Um, and then in, you know, in college and graduate school, I'd say I dressed because that at that point, you know, I was sort of free, more free to buy my own clothes. Mm -hmm. and, um, I'd say I still didn't really develop a real personal style. I think I just sort of dressed like generic hipster culture of that time uh were you wearing like j press stuff like were you did no, you get into the yet. ivy thing there okay which is no it's funny because i i was you know at at the sort of the the, the birthplace the, the birthplace <laughs> of ivy style but i yeah. didn't really develop an eye for it or a taste for it gotcha. um you know i was wearing like sort of ironic old man stuff that i'd find at thrift stores mm -hmm. and and you know american apparel stuff and like you know it was very much like what the what like artsy kids were wearing in right. circa 2005 you know um and then it was real and i you know when i would perform i would never quite know what to wear because I didn't want to appear like stuffy and fancy, like a you know quote unquote classical musician. Right. Um, I very much wanted to be like uh, rebellious. I guess. Well, what? What? How do you wear rebellious clothing? In a well, you know, I would sort of. I would wear these t-shirts. Um, I I would uh, sort of design my own t-shirts. I'd draw on them. I'd you know des design my own uh, t-shirts with fabric markers and like oh, maybe okay. I'd draw like a, a composer's face on it who I was playing. I'd do do a little portrait and then I'd throw on like some you know some old jacket that I got at Salvation Army and right. you know wear sneakers and you know this was. Do you draw on your shoes? I I was never a drawing on my shoes. Okay. Person. I'm trying to. I mean, I I guess I was wearing mostly like Adidas uh, sneakers, the nice. colorful Adidas sneakers at that time. Um, and you know, when I I got through grad school and I I moved to New York as sort of like a you know let's sort of establish myself professionally um, out of school, and I just started to feel a little bit like I wanted people to take me more seriously finally you know here I was in the big city you know I yep. wanted to establish a career I wanted people to know I was serious and good and like took it seriously and simultaneously it's just like the people around me were sort of um you know you're in New York you just see people who are dressed spectacularly every day yeah um and that was something I just sort of started to notice uh, in the way that one learns about, you know, fonts and you start to notice fonts everywhere. Right, right, it's right. Like, I, the, the idea suddenly occurred to me like, oh, people are trying to communicate something about themselves or, or something about the world or something. There was some message behind like how these people are dressing themselves. And that was, you know, right around that time, 2008, 2009, um, when I think this, this menswear movement was really catching steam or probably had already caught steam. I was just a little, no, I think, I think it, that was, that was peak was, was around that. Yeah, yeah. And, and there was also a lot of people writing on the internet about it. Yeah. Um, and so I sort of started reading, you know, uh, Derek Guy's stuff. And, a continuous lane, I assume. Yeah. Not well. Never him so much because it, that seemed to be more of like lifestyle stuff. Okay, and it wasn't really like a lifestyle that seemed like anywhere. Yeah, you're not you're not going to play a show in Red Wings on the piano, huh? Right. I mean, <laughs> the, certainly the aesthetic is is like you know you can't argue with it. But I was I was never really like a 
uh, aspiring to like the 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 owning a Rolex uh, lifestyle. You oh, know, okay, it yeah, did, yeah. just didn't seem approachable to me. Um, but I guess learning how to dress myself seemed like it could be um, doable. Mm-hmm. And this, I guess this idea that, you know, appeals to a lot of men about like, oh, there's this sort of systematic way of going about it that I can learn and I can learn the proper way that a, a sport coach should fit. Um, and I can learn what makes a pair of good shoes um that and and then i can you know buy it and then i'll be done and then i'll have it it'll be like i'll have the the thing but you strike me as someone whom you you can't like there's no point in purchasing or interacting with anything unless you you either are or on your way to become a master of about it. <laughs> well i think what it what yes yeah, very astute um <laughs> I think more what it is is like I have sort of an obsessive brain. Yeah. And if welcome I, to the show. Yeah. If I <laughs> if I get interested in something like that, I do find myself kind of going deep. Mm-hmm. Um and so this idea of like, oh, I need a suit to perform and I'll find out like how a suit should fit and I'll buy one. Mm-hmm. Um that very soon became like, oh, I own 15 suits. <laughs> like <laughs> And the and I and I love each one. Yeah, you know, and I, each one has its own sort of aesthetic reason for existing. And like it, be, it really became like it. It it very quickly became this thing that I was interested in aesthetically, and not just like an object designed to solve a problem in my life. Do you, you know? ever feel like? And maybe I don't want to project here because I know I personally wrestle with this sometimes. Sometimes the cost of these things because they're so premium compared to you know, at least your experience before then, that at least for me, I feel like I need to know everything about it. So if someone asks me, I can justify why I pay that much for it, right? <laughs> or at least justify it to yourself. Uh, yeah, or justify you know. it to myself. Yeah, because I'll be uh, like, well, no, this is blah, 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 blah. And anyway, you know, this is yeah. bespoke this. Or- no, and of course, you know, especially at that time, I didn't have a lot of extra money. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I, I figured out ways around it. You know, I, I was ebaying i was thrifting Mm -hmm. um you know i was uh i was looking out for deals you know (laughs) uh it it became this this sort of pursuit uh that of course as as you know can occupy a lot of your time and mental space yep um i was flipping on ebay like i'd go thrift stores and i learned you know what could sell on ebay and i'd flip um and then use the proceeds of course to go toward my own wardrobe oh yeah um and you know at the height of that i was doing you know quite a lot i was really like spending a lot of time on on ebay and and uh you know making a tidy amount of money really yeah i don't think i've ever made money on ebay ebay is like a toilet i flush things down (laughs) <laughs> and then also late at night it's like it's like my little secret drug addiction well if you fact if you factor in the net when you if you factored in the amount i was spending on clothes oh, okay i was not making money right oh oh yeah but understood you know it was enough so that i could you know buy some nice things yeah and, um you know little by little i would just sort of i i i I was always, you know, um, I wouldn't say I, I ever went totally nuts and like, I, you know, I never, I never like got an amount of money that would let me go nuts mm-hmm. at any one time. So it was always sort of a gradual thing. Um, and I learned little by little, like, oh, I do like this 
type of shirt. I don't so much like this other type of shirt. But you got to buy those. I think people forget, at least for well, me, but you have to buy them to get it. Thrifting was a way to mm, okay. sort of try yeah. out styles, try out different items of clothing, very low risk. Um, and, you know, I found a good cheap tailor who I, right. you know, was like keeping in business. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, um, and later on, I found a very good, expensive tailor who I would who I started going to and started actually uh, doing bespoke stuff with. Really, who's um, your tailor now? Um, still the same guy, uh, Frank uh, Ercole, oh. down in uh, in uh, Diker Heights. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I started going to Frank. First, for like, if I had like a complicated alteration on like a nice uh, coat or something that I'd found, I'd take it to him because I I knew he could like recut it and do a really nice job. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I said, you know, maybe I'll get, maybe I'll try this out. Maybe I'll get myself like a nice navy blazer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, that was sort of the, the beginning of the end <laughs> with that. But I mean, there again, it's like I would maybe get like one thing a year, uh, maybe one suit a year um from frank and so all of those things you know there there are of course thing many things i learned in the process you know over those years um uh but all of those things i still wear and i still like wow you know the first that's the ultimate accomplishment maybe you know (laughs) if i definitely had to get them let out a little over the years um but yeah i do i do now have you know a number of 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 things from him that are sort of became the core of, of what I wear for performances. Right. Um, and so that's sort of what I found I like to perform in was just a really nice, well-fitting suit that was, you know, appropriate for the weather, appropriate for the season. And, you know, nothing too flashy. You know, I'm not John Batiste over here. <laughs> um, but something that would make me feel so sort of put together and so sort of... Um, it it would uh you know so it's kind of a cliche to say but it it would make me feel sort of confident in my own it's not a cliche skin. that's the whole point of of getting made to in measure a, and in the way stuff. that yeah. like i never felt when i was growing up you know of course i mean did you ever commission any made to measure clothing <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not <laughs> yeah i mean I there barely you go. had a shirt that fit you know <laughs> Um, and so, you know, I think the way that I dress has become, it has changed over the years, of course, you know, it's changed for all of us. We've sort of you sure? you know, all been on this process of discovery. And of course, over the past couple of years, you know, just our lives have been so different. Um, but I would say, you know, I, I still tend to be attracted to that idea of like, um, a wardrobe that's based around tailoring in a way right even though i i certainly don't wear tailoring every day you know far from it maybe i'll put on like a tweed jacket to go teach you know you teach yeah i teach composition at at uh manis at the new school oh so you know i'll <laughs> embrace my my pro- professor there you uh, go role. yeah uh put on a tweed jacket and certainly for traveling it works nicely you know you want to have all the pockets and yeah um, i'm very particular about what how i pack uh for a trip um but I, th- I think I've, I've, you know, gravitated toward more sort of functional things that are utilitarian, sort of beauty and utility, um, maybe less, uh, a little, a little bit less dandy ah, than, okay. I, than I was at one point, maybe. 
Well, I think Actually, everyone was like that because yeah, especially if, if you get any made to measure or you get overwhelmed, or at least I did, overwhelmed by the options and then you become more focused on like customizing it, you know, mm-hmm. air quoting it, making it for you where someone would be like, hey, Jeremy, did you know that under the collar we could change the fabric to be this paisley thing? And I would be like, <laughs> right. well, I guess I need to do that. And then you get it and you're like, why the hell did I do this? <laughs> right. Or even when you're just looking through a book of fabrics and yeah. it's, it's like, it's the the sort of beautiful bright colors that tend yep. to jump out at you. Yep. And you're like, oh, that that coral red with the green overcheck. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's spectacular. Um, and then I, I imagine myself sort of going out on stage in a suit <laughs> made out of that. It's like, yeah, oh, that's, oh, this that's guy. probably not me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but... Well, what's the one thing that you, even though you probably have enough, you still continue to order? So I actually, at the beginning of 2020, so before pandemic, okay. I, I sort of started 2020 being like, I'm going to try not buying any clothes this year. No, oh, okay. Um, Here we go. Because I, you know, my my wardrobe was so, sure. so overstuffed. You know, I had all these sweaters and pants and it was just like, it was more that I'd, I'd like go through my like be doing my seasonal changeover and i'd I'd forget you know i would literally just forget like oh this this pair of pants like yep i love to shop my own closet it's great yeah um and so i I sort of said like i'm gonna spend this year just like wearing what i have and and you know seeing kind of refining and maybe deaccessioning um and so we all sort of know how that turned out yeah (laughs) you know i didn't i didn't put on a suit for a whole year and um it it ended up being very easy not to buy any clothes in 2020. Yeah. Um. So then I sort of said, okay, well, I'm not going to buy any clothes in 2021. Whoa. Um. And I have sort of been sticking to that for better. Are you serious? I mean, yeah. I mean, well, we're in 2022 now. So, so so part of it was that we bought this house, right? Yeah. That that um, I'm sure that that's a couple jackets so, worth. <laughs> so so. The the idea of like oh I have to I I can't touch that money I have to fix the plumbing you know yeah. dude I know that feeling yeah. um I got to buy a new refrigerator oh, you dude, know refrigerators are so effing expensive <laughs> now don't even get me started on appliances yeah not to mention like how am I how am I going to get the old one out it's like oh yeah so 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 this was sort of something. And I, I had always sort of had this goal in the back of my head, like I do eventually want to own a place someday. Um, and so now that that's happened, it's it's sort of become a a way of saying like, okay, I'm not not gonna pay the yearly trip to to Frank, um, you know, to get the new suit. Um, I'm just gonna wear what I already have and sort of really refine. Uh, sort of see what I end up wearing for what purpose a, a lot and then what I don't end up wearing and I'm going to deaccession. And I actually just, um, I just gave a like 25 pieces of uh, clothing to, uh, uh, to Matt at, at Lux Swap. Oh, interesting. Um, so doing a little bit of, I hope it gives you a, a homie deal though, at least I, you know, I'm, I'm doing it through, um, through uh, no man walks alone. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. I am going to have this store credit uh, that That's I, good. I've had my eye on a, a couple things. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I need a new, I need a new overcoat, that sort of thing. Oh, you know, did you get the Debone overcoat or did you go in on that pre-order? I, no, you know, I've been wearing, again, like something I thrifted years and years ago, probably 10 years ago, this 
amazing um, Paul Stewart overcoat from 1979. Whoa. Um, that like a top I, coat or like yeah, a double? Yeah, oh, like wow. a, it's a double-breasted peak lapel, um, just navy. Um, very, you know, kind of your basic sure. yeah, yeah. overcoat. It's great, It's but it's really on its last legs. And, you know, I, I wore the hell out of it. I repaired it over and over. And, um, but I do, it's like looking really shabby. I, 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 it's overdue to be replaced. Um, do you have a duffel coat there again? I have like a really old, um, duffel coat that, uh, was probably one of the, actually one of the first things I ever bought on eBay there again. It's like, it's got like toggles hanging off it and, oh, yeah. you know, it's got moth holes and, um, I, I still love it. You know, I, I, well, it has character now, you know, what's cool is if, I don't know if you ever get to go to the UK. Well, like I used to a... at least twice a year. That was actually oh, like okay. a big part of my like learning to dress. Actually, was like starting to go to London. Well, here go wait, go on and tell me. So, so I started going to London. I think the first time I played in London was like 2011. Um, so okay. I was, of course, I was you know completely obsessed with tailored clothing by then. You know, I was thrilled that I I would be able to go to London and you know like just walk into all these stores that I'd read about. And um, did you like go to Savile Row? Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. You know, I poked around. I poked around. Yeah you know german street and right. um it at that time there was no drake's store in new york like it was actually very hard to get drake's stuff over here yeah um and they didn't they had only just started making clothing you know mm-hmm. they had only just started making stuff besides for ties and accessories and so yeah i played played there i would you play i played in wigmore hall which is a a, a beautiful that's little, not a tiny spot well it is tiny physically but it, it's like, yeah, it has an outsized reputation, I would say. It's a wonderful little um, hall, like a classical music recital hall. Um, and, you know, I, I'm i sure I spent more than my fee uh, on, on clothes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that that's trip. why you do it, though. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, in fact, I, I think I bought this sweater. I was going to say, that that's trip. the uh, camel hair. The, this is the cashmere one. Oh, it's a cashmere one. Um, oh, excuse me. Oh damn! <laughs> that I I sort of, I had sort of had my eye on. Um, that was something that I had I I sort of knew that that was mm-hmm. like, the thing for me. But again, it was like impossible to like try one on in New York, and yeah, I sort of had to go there. And um, and again, it's this is something I wear, you know, during the during the season, you know, weekly if not daily. The house cardigan, yeah, and I just wear it around the house. I. Never wear it. I mean, yeah, you you have the house cardigan. <laughs> I mean that that is it's just kind it. of the perfect thing that you put on and you're it feels like you're just being hugged. Yeah, some people have hoodies, you have the cashmere <laughs> cardigan. I love it. Um and so this is this is one of those things that like I guess it I was sort of um buying less but better. I mean the fact that you still have it. I mean, so for so I had to go to we went to like Easter services the other day, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to find clothes and like, you know, I gained a little bit of weight during the pandemic and then I've been like trying to hit Who the gym more. Us, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and I found some stuff that I wanted to wear and I found a tie, which is like an old Drake's tie. And then I looked at uh, this was when I worked at the armory. And so, you know, a lot of the stuff you you would kind of also part of your compensation is you had like a little, you know wardrobe allowance you know air quote that's um, why everyone who works there always looks so good yeah well yeah. i mean because <laughs> one you kind of have to wear the stuff right but at the same time 
no nobody that works there can truly afford what that stuff costs. So but it, but of, also anyone who goes to work, anyone who applies to work there is already like probably obsessed with. Oh yeah, that you're, stuff. you're bought in. Yeah. yeah. So I you know I looked at it and I was like, okay, the pants I'm wearing are like from 2014. This jacket is from 2015. The shirt was Ascot Chang, and that said 2013. Nice. And I was like, oh, I'm still wearing all this. I you still know? wear. I got some some. I have some shirts from uh, Carl Goldberg. From Seago. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember Seago. That was like early style form guy. That, yeah. uh, I mean, he's still going strong. Um, back Going back to like 2011 that I still wear. I mean, that's that's the dream too. Especially and if, they've, if you make I, it last. A couple of yeah. them I've had the collars replaced over the years. I've never replaced a collar on a shirt. Did a couple it, of them he, weird? Flipped, he flipped them for me. So it's like worn now on the underside. Wait, that's a thing? Yeah. Holy cow. And you know, he... Happy to do it. No charge. Wow. Is it just like a blue Oxford or something? Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Um, but, wow. you know, this stuff does does last. So you've been on a hiatus for nearly two well, years. Well, yeah, clothes. almost. I mean, I, I've bought, you know, a couple of things. I have. Does this count eBay? I haven't really bought anything for me. Well, actually, no, that's not true. I, I've been buying um, L.L. Bean, like old L.L. Bean stuff for me, Bay. Okay. I, um, like knitwear or like the shoes? Uh, no, mostly like the heavy shirts, like heavy flannel shirts. Oh yeah. Um, so I I realized that was and that was something I I found at a thrift store. I was I was just like you know walking by Goodwill, think mm-hmm. I'll pop in, and I I found one that was in a color that I liked. Um, the so chamois. I said, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. The really heavy. Um, and I I just started wearing it all the time. I wore it all the time. Uh, you know, just um, knocking around the house during the pandemic mm-hmm. I was like these are really comfy these are really nice sort of insulating shirts for the cold and so i yeah i i, I bought a bunch of you know there you can find them for like 15 20 bucks on ebay probably not anymore um, but they have gotten probably ll bean stuff has gotten popular it's, it's yeah. hot yeah um, i try to try to find 501s on ebay right now oh really which is hilarious yeah because e- even it's like everybody knows that they're worth a lot. And so, but at the same time, like, nobody like knows what they have. One, like old 90s ones? Well, or? And that's the thing, right? Nobody knows. Very few people are able to like correctly date theirs. Mm. So, you know, people put Biggie when it's not Biggie and people put Orange Tab when it's not and oh, all that yeah, stuff. All that's, I, I, was, I was never really a, a Levi's obsessive, though I do, I do wear Levi's. Um, and actually one of, I think, Probably the the pair I wear most frequently is a pair I got up at Stella Dallas. I remember is Stella Dallas still around? They're oh still kicking, yeah, right? going strong. Okay, good. Yeah, um, you know, nineties ish. Yeah, uh, just your basic blue blue jeans. Yeah, you know the prototypical like from when we were kids <laughs> blue jeans. Yeah, uh, which at that time I would not have been caught dead wearing, but now I think are really cool. Um, have you ever gone the like high end Japanese denim route? Uh, I. Do have one pair from uh, from Self Edge? Okay, um, that are I think sugar cane. Oh yeah, um, and those are great. I mean, I mean they wearing sugar canes right now. There you go. These I are the sixty six. Yeah, yeah. I forget what model they are, but they're yeah. I would. There's they're sort of yeah. The slim slimish, but not too slim. Um, uh, and they're black. Black denim. Yeah. Wow. I don't think I've ever. I I have. I like got a bunch into of wearing. Black denim. Uh, yeah, I got into wearing the color black 
only relatively recently. Because remember the you know there was that whole thing in in sort of the menswear movement about like black clothing isn't useful or whatever. Well, and remember also, people used to say that. Yeah, and and but then you also had you know all the GQ dudes and like Will Welch talk about this all the time where like their uniform. I mean. Okay, Jim Moore, he's got like 4,000 black Lacoste polos, a black sport coat, black jeans. Will Welch, black t-shirt, black Levi trucker, oh, yeah. black Levi's jeans. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I don't know what he's wearing now. I'm sure he's wearing different stuff. But like, it, it, then people started trying to call it out as being like, oh, that's just like a cop out because it, it fits and it's easy. But well, I feel like it's, it's such coming such a thing back in, a in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Specifically that that people have these sort of all black wardrobes and yeah. it's very it's very sort of chic and avant-garde. Um I yeah, for a long I mean I I love color as you can see by like all of the like colorful things the wonder in, in the house. home. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and yeah, and I I forget what uh may have been actually a uh like a black uh cashmere turtleneck, like a roll neck sweater that I got at uh, some you know like a armory sample sale or something oh yeah okay. and i started wearing it under a um like a, an old brooks um herringbone sport coat mm-hmm. like a black and white herringbone and i i just found i loved how it looked the sort of monochromatic look um and then so then i, I started like admitting black in, <laughs> into my wardrobe more after that and um it somehow felt at the time less a little less dandy and a little more serious mm. I like I was leaning into something a little you know in my 30s now oh, yeah like yeah. uh and putting away childish things and, Give me yeah the and also knit. just sort of like the I think the mood shifted a little toward oh. less um less sort of peacocky dressing uh-huh um and the and the mood just sort of generally in the world and politic politically sure. just like got much more dark and depressing and gloomy and um and it suddenly started to feel like oh, I'm, I'm like i'm i'm dressing too like showily uh i should tone it down a little <laughs> and um yeah I th- so i th- but you know it was it was sort of something i just found that i liked was um i would i sort of started dressing more monochromatically more more sort of muted colors and, mm-hmm. um you know sh- shades of khaki one could say <laughs> Yeah. Um and you know, go all black or sometimes I go all white. Um do sort of a very very like pale like cream on white. What do you have something. yeah well, cuz I feel like that's like uh, all the cool Swedish dudes will always do the sort of you know very light earth tones with like Oh a, yeah. What's that guy's name? Um the guy who used to sell uh, a lot of the Eidos stuff. Um uh wait, you mean Agesh? In like Malmo. No, but he his clothes are amazing. Oh, I guess from Stofa? Yeah. Yeah, and I've, I've never actually bought anything from them, but I think that aesthetic was very, um, it's very attractive to me. Yeah. That that kind of dressing. Um, do, you know this, from... do you know this brand, Husbands? Oh, the, yeah, that's the French. French. Brand? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're like a kind of 1970s yeah. chic sort of. Yeah, like very interesting cuts. Yeah, Husbands um, is fantastic. Yeah, I love their stuff. Um and oh uh de bonfacture i was i got yeah. really into their stuff um yeah, Deborah, she's, she's a little yeah. bit more minimal um margaret howell is a uh someone who I, i've always sort of loved her whole aesthetic mm-hmm. um so yeah i think i've i've sort of gravitated more in that like clothes that are utilitarian but have a beauty in their 
sort of functionality. There's rather, depth to them. Yeah, rather yeah. than being like overtly um, ov- like displaying their beauty, like a you know like a, a loud like window pane mm-hmm. sport coat or something. You know that I that I would have loved in like 2011. Yeah. Um, well, it's. I mean, you can kind of feels like this runs parallel to your career in confidence as an artist, right? You don't you don't feel like your clothes need to do the work for you or anything. At yeah, least, maybe so. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, it's you exist and you're happy with your existence, so you don't have to amplify that with anything, you know, exterior. Yeah, I mean, I do feel the, I do feel a desire because, like, classical music as an industry is, I have to say, not a particularly well dressed industry, especially okay. the men. Um, Wait, who are who are the? I mean, Max Richter looks cool. Yeah, I mean, well, but but he's sort of, you know, he's he's got his like. Yeah, his 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 like artsy like turtleneck uh, <laughs> going for True. sure. Very minimal. Chili Gonzalez, he's pretty out there. Oh, but, totally. Yeah. yeah, but I I would say he his sense of style doesn't come from within the classical music world. Correct. He's sort of bringing it to the classical music world. Yeah. Um. You know, there are yeah there there are a few people who I could name. I mean, my friend Aaron Deal, wonderful pianist. But again, he dresses sort of like like um the the jazz legends of the fifties and sixties, okay. sort of bringing it back. Um, but a lot of, and, and this is actually one of the things that's kind of great about classical music is like, you can be a completely average looking person <laughs> and be a, a classical music star. You know, it doesn't matter what you look like. I think I, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, I maybe I I think there's probably a double standard when it comes to women. Um, I think there's more pressure on women to be, you know, sexy and and uh, more overtly sort of like showy and how they dress. But yeah. for the most part, you know, you can age into a career in classical music. You can sort of little by little build a career until by the time you're in your 40s, 50s, even 60s, you're suddenly like a major name. Oh, you don't need to hit it big um, when you're young. And part of that is like this emphasis of like, it's all about how you sound. It's all about how you play, how your music sounds like, doesn't matter how you look. It doesn't matter how you dress. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great. You know, that's something I, I don't think I want to change. On the other hand, classical music for a long time had a uniform. You know, you wore tails, you wore a tuxedo. Oh um, yeah, you're right. You know, yeah. and that sort of ended in i'd say like before i was in the industry right like i never owned tails or even a tuxedo um and i've only had to wear tails once i had to borrow them (laughs) yeah um but yeah that or even orchestras even sort of the most like uh stick in the mud like old-fashioned orchestras i think stopped requiring tails for the most part uh in the conductors some do older ones, but even them, like I saw, um, like Gustavo, is he wearing, is he wearing tails? He may when he's conducting a gala or something, but mostly not. Okay. I saw, um, Zubin Mehta conduct last week at the, at the LA Phil, um, you know, one of the most esteemed like elder statesman conductors. He was wearing a beautiful, obviously had been made for him, um, uh, blue double breasted suit. 
Wait, you can be, oh man, I got to see this, a composer and a DV? Because uh, I feel conductor, like- Conductor, conductor. Excuse me, a conductor yeah. and a DV? That's got to be somewhat restrictive, no? Well, and he, he's, he's old. He doesn't move uh, as oh. demonstratively as, say, a, a Gustavo or someone like that. Okay. Um, he's sort of, you know, he's sitting on a stool and he's moving his he's arms sitting. in a very sort of purposeful way. Yeah. And his body is more or less sting still. Um. I mean, still, that's sick, though. He looked, TV. yeah. He looked incredible. I mean, he looked amazing. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of men, a lot of male performers, were sort of left without a compass mm. when it stopped being when the uniform stopped being a thing. And so now there's just sort of this weird in between situation where like you're supposed to wear a black suit and like maybe a black, maybe even a black suit plus a black shirt. That's like become sort of a standard thing. I know it sounds weird. Yeah, it seems kind of lame. And then like, can you push back on that? Like, what is I, that? I, I don't even own a black shirt. Right. Not a dress shirt. Um, I, I, I might, uh, yeah, I own a black knit tie, but that's the only black tie I have. Good call. Um, I, yeah. And then the blacks don't match. The fabrics don't match. Like the suit gets yeah, really shiny. Cause it's like you, it, there's just yeah. like a, a really kind of sorry looking like black on black on black, um, look that's very prevalent in classical music. <laughs> and I, you know, I don't own a black suit. Right. I, I have a, a nice charcoal, like shark skin. There you go. Uh, which, uh, which presents as black. Right. Um, but to me, it's just like, it's not, it's not that interesting to look at and it's not very flattering. Like it's a very like directional look that I think most people probably can't pull off unless they're like very, very attuned to the way things fit. And, mm. and, you know, we have, we're moving around up there, you know, we're, we're, um, we, we have to have sort of freedom of movement, you mm -hmm. know? So the era of like these very slim, slim cut, uh, tight suits like that never really worked for me. Right. And I don't think it works very well for you. You see people trying to play in those still, and it, it's just, it looks so uncomfortable, very restrictive. Jeez. Um, so I do in a way feel like. I I want to sort of quietly push back on that idea that like oh we have we have to wear this sort of like contemporary music new music black uniform yeah. which is I guess you could say it's it's democratizing in a way but like it's just not that beautiful to look at and to me it's like yes the music is the most important thing but also you know we're performers we're we're up there we're doing our our craft we're doing mm -hmm. it at a very high level um and yeah, maybe it wouldn't hurt to put a little more care into, you know, how to be a little bit more interested in, in how we look. Right, right. Um, so, you know, I, I, I like to think I'm, I'm sort of quietly doing my part by, again, like wearing mostly very staid, uh, very. Your, your rebellion very sort of, is a gray sort of quiet, suit. <laughs> quietly tasteful um, yeah. uh, suits, but like. Yeah. You know, you don't you don't see people performing in in like gray flannel suits very often. True, true. Um, and I do have some louder suits. You know, I have some some very cool linen suits for like summer festivals and. Uh, but you're mostly a solo performer, so I right? I mean, because well, uh, yeah, I probably mostly, but I do. You know, I play with orchestras. I play right. chamber music a fair amount. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. So you know, one has to take into account like what other people are wearing. You know, if I if everyone else is wearing black and I show up in in my my um my Dunhill 
uh, one button gun check plaid. Uh, <laughs> okay, tan, here he comes suit. again. Like, Timo's just going. <laughs> <laughs> that is, you know, maybe it uh, looks like a little bit of an ego trip on my part. <laughs> so I don't want. And he brought the Eames chair. Too. Yeah, I don't want to be that guy. This- <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, this is great. I have, I have a. Before we wrap, I have a series of random questions here. Please. Um, you're a YouTube guy. And, yeah, but uh, pretty recently, like only in the past couple of years since pandemic. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, you're a new a new YouTuber. Yes. <laughs> um, if you were making a YouTube how-to video, what would the subject be? Hmm. Well, I mean, I'm I'm basically doing the only thing I have real expertise at already on YouTube. <laughs> I'm not. It's not really a how-to, but um, how to play the piano. <laughs> Because <laughs> you can make this in a video. There you go. It's I don't all done. Te- I don't teach piano. I'm not sure whether I'd be good at teaching piano. But um, I did actually. I I filmed a video of um, my friend Nico sent me a, a he well he has this he'll send me these like gag gifts uh, every so often. Nico Nico Muley, okay, the composer you may yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Nico sent me he he had this. He'll sometimes send me these just like weird like random tacky kitchen gadgets from amazon just like the cheapest like Hell ridiculous yeah. stuff you could possibly imagine like so one time he sent me this um it was like a, a special machine for for cooking bacon oh i know exactly what that you, is you drape it over the top yeah you drape it over the top thing and then and then it all all the bacon grease melts into the lower that's pan. the idea at any rate yeah. yeah so anyway i did film a, a video <laughs> of me trying out this bacon griddle um for the first time. You realize you're which, going full circle now. Your dad, you're you're reviewing stuff. Kind of. Yeah, I would like to review <laughs> I I'll, maybe I'll start a second channel that's just me reviewing cheap kitchen gadgets from Amazon. I'm in. This um well, I I it's I didn't even make it public. It's it's a private link. I, I can send it to you though. <laughs> maybe I should. You should totally make it public. Especially, you know, you're reclaiming the the Actually there stigma is some um, of- there is a cooking there is a cooking show I did years years and years ago like before I had my own channel there I was a guest on a YouTube cooking show. Oh. So I do show you how to make um uh, a steak salad. A steak salad? Yeah. Oh wow. That's 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 from that's from the archives. That's probably 10 years old. Damn, that's sick. Um what is the last movie you saw? <laughs> Honestly, it was uh Beverly Hills Cop. Hell yeah. On the on the plane. Great pick. <laughs> it, was it on the yeah. iPad or what was no, it? No, it was on it's on Delta um so you, you're back. you're the the stock Delta Entertainment guy, huh? I I'm a I'm terrible at flying. I I like forget to eat and I I like forget to drink. I just I I get there. I feel so shitty. Um, I no, but I was I was going to play in Beverly Hills. I had this kid's concert in Beverly Hills, and I was staying in Beverly Hills. So I was like, oh, Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, okay. I'll watch that. Yeah, that that um, you should have watched Clueless. That would be that would have been another <laughs> another very uh, apropos <laughs> choice. I had actually or Beverly Hills Ninja. This, this, uh, somewhat maybe it's not embarrassing. I I had actually watched Clueless fairly recently on the plane. So my wife and I watch <laughs> Clueless multiple times a year. It holds up. It definitely holds up. And you know what else holds up is Eddie Murphy's performance in Beverly Hills Cop. Oh yeah, I mean that's a classic. It's a he is he is such a virtuoso. He's just so charismatic. He's so funny. He's so quick. It's just an amazing. And you know who else? Whoever else is in the movie almost doesn't matter. Yeah, I he, agree. He's so good. Um, what's the last album you heard? Uh, album. Last album I listened to, beginning to end, was probably. 
um, Hijira, Joni Mitchell. Whoa. Um, which I listened to in my hotel room. A I would figure you were a Court and Spark guy. A what? A Court and Spark. I that name doesn't ring a bell. That's isn't it a Joni Mitchell album? Court I don't and know Spark? that one. Oh, you got to dig in. See, this it. is this is what I'm talking about. Is like I'm still like find I'm finding out about all the stuff I missed, like in reverse. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm in the same. I'm in the same. Like boat. I, I've been stuck in the 1970s for because I years. um yeah all like the the history of popular music is basically like this still very untapped well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm just I know stuff that I've listened to sort of scattershot, mm-hmm. but it but I didn't grow up listening to any of that stuff and I didn't grow up with parents who listened to it mm. and so fi- sort of finding it for myself has has been amazing like a, a, an amazing pleasure I think of like hearing like you two Joshua Tree for the first time and like having my mind blown Dude, okay th- I'm glad I'm so glad you said that because my you know I have a four-year-old and she watched the movie Sing 2 which mm. To be honest, most kids' movies are garbage, but I would say some of the more recent movies are pretty great because they realize, you know, adults are probably watching this with their kids and like the Pixar thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but like Sing 2, um so it's Sing the number 2. Um it's the sequel to the Not first one. Not to be one. confused with Sing Sing. Yeah. <laughs> and the uh the music in there is U2. Oh, and, really? And yeah, and so my <laughs> Um, I mean, it's a bunch of music. Uh, there's like Coldplay's Sky Full of Stars on there, oh, wow. which, you know, my daughter is obsessed with. Um, Good song, actually. It, it's, I mean, there's a, there's a catchy riff. Beautiful. I mean, Guy, guy Coldplay, listens to the Coldplay at its best. I'm so, this is like painfully unhip of me to say, but like Coldplay at its best is epic. Okay. <laughs> well, and this, this is the thing, because like a lot of these bands like tie into nostalgic experiences so like Rush of Blood to the Head to me or Parachutes the first two Coldplay albums are like all of these memories of me growing up and you know they're me playing guitar they're me you know all all sorts of stuff and the funny thing is uh, because you'd mentioned Joni Mitchell Court and Spark my mom owns that album four times she's Mm -hmm. She bought it and she bought it when she knew she had it and she kept buying it because she just she bought it on LP, then she bought it on tape, then she well, bought she it on Well, she has four LPs. And- yeah, oh, too. Wow. And she has in, in every available format. Like, cause it it's such a powerful memory with her. Wow. You know, and I mean, I, I don't really know any other art form that it's can- funny. I mean, because that that music for me, of of course, it doesn't really have that resonance of being tied to a place or a time so much. Right. So it's a little bit more, um, you know, when I listen to Hajira, which is an album that I've pr- known for probably a year, mm-hmm. um, but that I love, or like um, Emily Harris' Wrecking Ball is another one that is, um, I've, it's it's one of my favorites from, I'd say, the past couple of years that I've just listened to over and over and over. Um, and it's it's funny, I do, like it doesn't have any like nostalgia or or any sort of um, memory for me. And there is music that does have that, but it's it's more of an analytical thing at first, where I'm kind of listening to the songwriting and I'm oh. saying like, what what are what's she doing here? Well, like what's what's she doing that is unique, that's different, that like makes this music special? Because I hear you know the, from the very first chords of of uh, Hijira, mm-hmm. um, I hear something in the harmony that. It kind of makes my ear perk up and say, like, what's what are the notes in that chord? Why does it sound so? Why do I hear that chord and I know it's Joni Mitchell? Um, uh, yeah, she's a phenomenal guitar player, obviously. Well, but there's that. The, her her melody about, over guitar the, is there's something so about the strange. melodic writing. There's something yeah. about the chord voicing, yeah. and that's sort of the thing that has always 
attracted me to music, I think, most deeply. Mm. It sounds weird to say, but like literally just the the vertical aspect of it, like what notes are sounding together. Interesting. And in what uh, in what spacing? How far apart are they? And and how does that make me feel? And and I think I I would say the the moments in music that move me the most almost always have to do with that aspect of it. Some sort of particular way what i'm describing is harmony of course sure. i mean har- the, some sort of particular way that the harmony twists or or changes or resolves or doesn't resolve or to me harmony is such a fantastically deep and powerful tool for articulating music over time mm-hmm. for sort of creating expectation delaying expectation you know uh either you know, delayed gratification or gratification or, you know, whatever you want to do with it. Um, and of course, that's something that is very much a primary concern in almost all classical music and almost all jazz. Right. Um, you know, it's something that I think it ties a great deal of Western music together. And so mm. that for me has been a useful entry point into whenever I hear a new piece of music by anyone. Mm. Well, this ties into my last question. What is a movie or a book or a album that when someone mentions, you feel they understand you? (laughs) Well, it depends on how they mention it. If they say they hate it, maybe... Uh, I've never heard anyone spin it like that. That's fair. <laughs> if someone me- if someone says that they that the unconsoled is their favorite book by Ishiguro, that's I how I know that's um, that you know Ishiguro. You know he wrote um, uh, Never Let Me Go, The Remains of the Day. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Um, these are sort of his most popular books, and they're wonderful. You know, they're incredible books. Uh, the unconsoled is probably his least popular book, um, but it's sort of this this wild like experimental novel um that is actually about a composer pianist um and it takes place over the course of one day um it's a very long book uh but it it goes through this one day in this sort of um he's on this journey to try and get to the concert that he's supposed to play that night um but all of these insane roadblocks kind of keep cropping up and getting in his way and they become progressively more and more insane at one point he he sort of is introduced to a child that is his that he didn't know he had and you know things like this like whoa it, it's this kind kind of like process of like forgetting who he is almost and um it's uh it <laughs> I think it's a it's a wonderful sort of like like wormhole into like the the ego of an artist in a way. I think it's very perceptive about that because there is a certain amount of 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 ego that is I think required to think that you can be an artist. You know, to think that anyone would have any interest in what you're making, mm. putting it out into the world. Um, but but yeah, that book and and there's another aspect of it which is just sort of a funny resonance with the way that touring and and like actually the act of traveling and playing concerts uh in place after place can feel sometimes that way where it's like i'm just trying to play the concert like why is life so difficult sometimes <laughs> <laughs> like why why is there all this other stuff that i have to do yeah why am i being taken to all these different places yeah um, so for that reason it was fun to read wow well, Timo, this was incredible. I cannot thank you enough. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, it was a pleasure. Yeah, this was so much fun. We'll, we'll have to do this again soon. Thanks. I hope so. All right, see ya. 
Nice guy, right? Pretty cool. You've been listening to Blamo. We're edited by Amar Lal. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder, and we're produced by Blamo Media. If you like the show, tell a friend, give us some good vibes, whatever you do when you like stuff, and you can follow us online at Blamo Podcast or email us at info at blamopod.com. If you want to hang out with us, you can join the Blam fam at patreon.com forward slash Blamo, where we have tons of exclusive episodes and our Blamo Slack group. It's a lot of fun. Get in there. Shit the chat. All right. That's it, folks. See you soon.